Please be seated. If you have a Bible, now would be a great time to open it to the book of 2 Samuel. Today we are in chapter 16, and we have uh, some catching up to do. We sort of broke off 2 Samuel during the final portion of Advent and Christmas season, and uh, today is our first day back in 2 Samuel, and it's a, uh, a story where David is sort of descending, sort of going down more and more. Um, he is going into exile because his son, Absalom, you know, the guy with the hair. You know who Absalom is. And when I think of Absalom, I think of a man bun. I bet you he had a man bun, and I bet he looked really cool with that man bun. Now, by the way, I'm not being facetious to those of you who may have one. I don't have enough hair to have one, but um, he had a man bun, more than likely. At least I think he did. He weighed his hair, you know, when he cut it and all of that. But he's the guy. He's the king's son who takes away his father's throne, who oust him, usurps the position of being the king. And so David is at a nadir or a low point in his experience. So there's much to learn from this chapter, so please give attention to the reading of God's Word. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, uh, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of the summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, and the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. His father is Saul. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. When King David came to Bahurim, there came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gerah. And he came, as he came, he cursed continually. And he threw stones at David and, and at all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. And Shammai said as he cursed, Get out, get out! You man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, and the brother, by the way, of Joab, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over there and take off his head. 
But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? If he is cursing, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, Behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjaminite leave him alone, let him curse, for the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. So David and his men went on the road, while Shammai went along on the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went and threw stones at him and flung dust. And the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. Now Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. And when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom said to Hushai, Is this your loyalty to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, no, for whom the Lord and this people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? As I have served your father, so I will serve you. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your counsel, what shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. And all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Now in those days the counsel that Ahithophel gave was, was if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you for preserving it, for inspiring it, for it being recorded, for it being preserved, so that we may see it today, for it has much to say to all of us. We pray that we will listen to the word of God, as it is in truth your word. And we pray that we may profit from it in a multitude of ways, ultimately bringing glory to your great name. And this we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story of David's exile from Jerusalem continues, and his encounters occur in this chapter, it was basically two guys from the house of Saul, and then ultimately Ahithophel uh, is the one who betrays him. But this is a very interesting chapter in the life of David. First, he encounters a guy by the name of Ziba. After David had sent Hushai back to Jerusalem as a plant and a spy, as it were, to go back and serve under Absalom, the king's son. David is traveling and leaving Jerusalem, 
And as we know, he goes over the Mount of Olives, crosses the uh, Brook of Kidron, then goes up over the Mount of Olives, and uh, here comes a guy by the name of Ziba. We've met Ziba before. Ziba is a very interesting character. He is of the house of Saul. He was um, determined by David to be the one who would take care and oversee the wealth of Mephibosheth. You remember him, the lame son of Saul from Lodabar, who came and through David's graciousness was allowed to feast at the king's table. Ziba is his servant, and he comes to David with donkeys, probably more than two because look at all the stuff. It's, it's more than two donkeys could have carried, and the donkeys were for the king to ride on, but Ziba comes with a plan. Ziba is like this kind of person. If you ask anybody what's two plus two, let's assume you ask a professor in mathematics at UNLV what is two plus two. Now, if he has a doctorate in math, which some people here do, I think, he would probably look at you, are you crazy? Any first grader could answer that question. And he'd probably say, to be accurate about it, he said, some might say 3.9, some might say 4.1, descending. He said, but you can be pretty sure that 2 plus 2 is what? 4, right? Let's say that you go over to the philosophy department, and you get a philosopher, and you ask a philosopher, what's 2.2 plus 2? And he might say, well, how are you speaking of that? Do you mean metaphysically? Do you mean epistemologically, what is two plus two? Or do you mean in axiology, what is the value of two plus two? Or are you talking about two plus two in regard to skepticism? You know, skepticism is being skeptical about everything. He said, some people might say it's four, but we're not altogether sure. He said, I'm not even sure I can be certain to give you an answer of what two plus two is. Then he turns to a third guy he goes over to the school of hotel administration, shall we say, and he walks into the front desk and he sees a dapper young man who is, looks like he's up and coming and ready to conquer the world, and he asks him, what's two plus two? And this guy's in the law school, two, at night, and he looks at the uh, person asking the question, he says, well, what do you want it to be? What do you want it to be? That is Ziba. That's him. Because Ziba is a con man. Sort of gave it away in the outline, didn't I? Why would I make such a radical statement that Ziba is a con man? Well, because Ziba is trying to cover both ends. He's always looking for a good place for him to lay. And he comes with all this stuff for David and then tells this tale regarding Mephibosheth as if he's waiting now to be crowned king since the Davidite is gone. David is gone. Now the house of Saul can get what they've always deserved. And Mephibosheth is next in line and he's going to be king. Don't you think Mephibosheth was smart enough to know Absalom's already here? I have no shot. I have no chance. And yet that's what Ziba sells to David. He's lying. He's conning him. And why would Mephibosheth ever send that? Why would he ever do that? And yet David turns around, I guess out of being tired, or tired of it, and uh, hand it back over to um, Ziba. Supposedly Ziba was loyal to David, but 
here he is slandering Mephibosheth. Here he is making up claims. And there was little reason that Mephibosheth would ever think that Absalom's rebellion would result in um, the restoration of a Saulide or a son of Saul to the throne. And so David had promised Jonathan, you, you remember, uh, to provide kindness for his family, and that was Mephibosheth. So David uh, leaves there and goes to a city about a mile and a half northwest of Jerusalem called Bahurim. And there's a guy there by the name of Shammai. And Shammai, Shammai is like most of us uh, when he gets in a position where he's, he's lost it. He has completely lost control. And, you know, most people don't go around cursing and throwing rocks at and dust and mud and whatever else at someone with the presence and authority of a king, even if he is being ousted. But he comes to David with this story, being connected to Saul, that David is a man of blood, that he deserves everything he's getting. And so he comes at him with both barrels blazing and calling him all kinds of insulting things. And so David had nothing to do with the death of Saul, nothing to do with the death of his sons. David was totally innocent. You'll remember that as we went through the narrative. It was always clear that the writer of Samuel made it uh, patently clear that David could never be charged with destroy. You remember how many times Saul tried to kill him, how many times Saul pursued him, how many opportunities David had to finish him off, but never, David never did it. But this guy named Shammai is unloading, he is cashing his check on David. He is venting his spleen, as it were. And so he unlooses it, and he tells David that he has blood on his hands, David does have blood on his hands, but it isn't Saul's, and it isn't Jonathan's, and it isn't Abner nor Ishbosheth. He has the blood of Uriah on his hands. Now, the way that David responds in this context is really amazing. What does he do? He doesn't say anything, does he? He doesn't defend himself. He doesn't listen to Abishai, who had already probably drawn his sword and was ready to decapitate this guy, Shammai. No, he tells him, perhaps the Lord has sent him here to curse me today. Maybe the Lord is using him to bring to bear upon my own heart because David has lost the kingdom. David's son is now on the kingdom, and David is smart enough to remember that the words of Nathan the prophet are being fulfilled, and David submits himself to the sovereignty of God without saying a word. This is not resignation. This is submission. It reminds me a lot about what Peter said when Jesus hung on the cross and he was cursed, but he did not curse. He was reviled, but he did not revile. He was insulted, but he did not insult. And what he did was he committed his soul to him who judges justly. David had come to realize all of David's life prior to Bathsheba, he understood this principle, I cannot fix the world. He understood this principle that I am not in control. Therefore, when things happened to him, he generally submitted himself to the Lord and allowed the Lord to deal with it. 
And that's what he does here. And he says, perhaps the Lord will show mercy to me because I haven't retaliated against Abish, I mean against um, Shammai. The cursing, as we know, of Israel's leaders was forbidden by the law of Moses. And though it seems unlikely, the offer of Abishai to relieve Shammai of his head for slander was motivated out of a concern for Mosaic legislation, or was he motivated by a hot-headed temper? After all, the sons of Zeruiah are known for violence. But here, David hopes that God may have pity on him due to the cursing. And finally, when David and his people arrive at the destination, they are exhausted, they are weary, and the battle has not yet even begun. David is down. David has the blues. And in this case, he wrote one of the greatest blues songs of all time, Psalm 3. And in Psalm 3, as most blues songs do, he says something very profound. We'll get to it in a moment. But David resisted the urge to go after Shammai and to sort of submit himself to this onslaught of just the worst kind of tongue lashing that anyone could do. Uh, he leaves Jerusalem. Think of David leaving the kingdom. His son, his son, his own flesh and blood has taken the kingdom away from him. Many, many of his dearest, deepest supporters and friends have betrayed him, have left him, have taken sides, and the side wasn't his side. And so God is fulfilling for David the word of the prophet Nathan in chapter 12, verses 9 through 9, uh, 10. But God gave David another word through Nathan, the promise of an eternal kingdom. And so David is both aware of Nathan's prophecy regarding him being ousted and his son taking his concubines, which we will see in a moment. But he's also aware of the foundational promise of the Davidic kingdom in 2 Samuel uh, uh, 7, 11 through 16. So David must be having a rough time sleeping. He's got to be struggling with all of his being to maintain any kind of sense of uh, having his feet under him, having himself supported. And so I want you to look. You can look in the front of your bulletin. That's where the psalm is, uh, in the very front of the bulletin. I'm, I'm going to read from uh, the psalm and try to read more than what's in the front of the bulletin. The most important part is the quote in the bulletin. But here it starts. O Lord. How many are my foes? How many? Many are rising against me. Many are saying to my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. That would probably be the conclusion he would draw from listening to the cursing of Shammai. But you, O Lord, look at how David comforts himself with what he knows about God. David speaks to his own heart. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. 
I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So David, in verse 4 in particular, turns to those attributes of God, turns to what he understands about the nature of God, and he clings to faith in God emphatically. But it is you, that's with emphasis, O Lord. His enemies are numerous. His enemies are powerful. But he draws on his experience of God who has sustained him in the past, God who is a shield around him. Just as the round leather shield gave protection to the soldier and the warrior, so the shield becomes a favorite title for God's presence and protection for those who put their trust in him. David has nowhere else to go. He has nothing else to hope in. He realizes now that neither a son's love nor the popular acclaim can serve a person's worth or security. David here becomes a gospel-centered guy, so to speak. David relocates where his glory and where his hope is. His hope is not in his protection of his mighty men on his right and his left. His glory is not in the throne of Israel, not in the robes the king would wear. His glory is not in his judgment as a king ruling over the affairs of men, not the uh, swagger that he must have walked with, with as a king, but he's totally relocated where he gets his understanding of what is truly weighty, what is truly substantial is his relationship with God. That should be the first place we run to when we're experiencing sleeplessness. You ever have those nights where you can't shut it off? You ever have those nights when anxiety is just eating you alive? Do you ever have those nights where you can't wait till it's morning because you can finally get out of bed because you sure haven't slept? And that's exactly what David experienced in the beginning. But it is you, O Lord, who is my glory. God is the one who is central to and important and significant in the psalmist's life and the one who he can depend upon to defend him when uh, all challenge his honor or dignity as a person. The word glory, literally kabod, indicates a person standing in the community. When applied to God, it points to his standing at the center of life, his supreme power, his majesty that is awesome and incomparable. God is the one who lifts up my head. What does it mean to lift up your head? Well, David had every reason to hold his head down in shame, in brokenness, in loss. Everything now had turned. Everything now was against him. He was at the end of his rope. He's sort of having a Jacob wrestling with the uh, angel of the Lord experience. But David is at the end, but he realizes something. He realizes that God is the lifter of his head, which means what? God is the one who will vindicate him. And God is the one who will vindicate you. You ever had anybody betray you? You ever had anybody do you wrong? You ever had anybody cheat you? You ever had anybody lie about you, ruin your reputation, question your heritage, question your birth, uh, who your mother was? Back in the day where I grew up, you didn't talk about people's mothers. You could talk about anything in the world. You could talk about somebody's father. You could talk about your brother. Don't talk about my mother. That was how it was. 
But David has been slandered. He has been abused in every way. David knows in his gut this was coming because God already pronounced it through Nathan. He knew it was coming. But he also knew that God had promised there would always be a Davidite, a David upon the throne. So here he is in agony, and he cries out, and God comforts him. Not right away. He struggles through, but God comforts him. Uh, and so God vindicates him uh, and has seen him through many difficult situations in the past. Uh, he has been returned to favor, and he longs to return and worship again with the people of God. The psalmist commits himself to God's hair, care. What might have been a restless, troubled night becomes a night of peace and quiet and restoring sleep with an awakening to a new day and a sign of God's protection. The crisis remains. Those who are eager to attack him are coming. And so therefore, David trusts and presents his case to the Lord and rests in the Lord. Sometimes that's so hard to do. That's so hard to do. We're creatures who when we get afraid, we run faster. We run faster. And yet David here finds a moment's peace. It's not all resolved by no means. But he finds that moment. And so while David and his company are completely worn out and fatigued from their flight, David's plan to thwart the advice of Ahithophel begins as David, uh, as to unfold as David, uh, David's confidant, Hushai, meets with Absalom. Absalom is now in control of Jerusalem and the palace. Hushai is one of David's few loyal supporters in the capital. Hushai greets him with long live the king. Now Hushai could have said that but he meant really what? Long live the real king David. Hushai is very careful not to put himself in a position where he's throwing out unquestioned support for, for Absalom. He does the dance all the way through here to maintain the position that he can have for David. But David has a very important person in his life there also, and his name is Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was well-regarded and well-esteemed for his ability to give counsel, for his wisdom in matters and affairs. And so he's a big leaguer. Ahithophel's a big, big, important person in the kingdom who had been so loyal to David. But there's one other thing you need to know about Ahithophel. Why did he go with um, Absalom and not go with David when he was pursuing. One and one name only will help you understand. Bathsheba. Who was Bathsheba's grandfather? Ahithophel. Now don't you think that when David went and took her for himself and whether you like to think of it or not forced her to be with him how awful that was but Ahithophel gives David advice probably most scholars think probably on the very same roof that Absalom saw Bathsheba bathing he sends Absalom 
to go into the tent of the concubines of the king. Now, you've got to understand royalty in the ancient Near East at this time. To take the concubines, buddy, is taking the father's right to the throne. To do that and openly display that you are taking your father's concubines meant I am taking the kingdom, and what are you going to do about it? And so that is what Absalom did. He did exactly what Ahithophel, Ahithophel recommended that he do. And so he does it. He knew uh, that uh, that would be the death blow, as it were, for David's kingdom. He follows Ahithophel's advice. He pitches a tent on the roof at the palace so everybody would know what's going on. Ironically, David's sin began on that roof in the same palace from where he lusted for Bathsheba. This connection reminds the reader the terrible turn of events, fulfilling the prophetic word again of Nathan the prophet. Of course, a son taking a father's wife is explicitly forbidden in the law, so the deeds cast Absalom in a bad light, to say the least. The narrator then quotes Ahithophel's advice was so reliable that both David and Absalom equated it, its dependability with a divine oracle from God. In other words, if Absalom decided not to follow Ahithophel's advice, it would almost be a miracle. And of course, that's what makes the story happen exactly as it happens. So we see those two things falling on David. We see both the cursing, but again, as we close, there's a couple of things I want to bring to your attention. And the first one is David's character shown in the wrongful cursing of Shammai. We are told in the Bible to bless those who curse you and not to retaliate against those who attack us. The early church fathers saw David in this instance as a model of patient endurance. Augustine writes the following. With this patience, holy David endured the insults of one abusing him, though he could have easily wreaked vengeance on him. When Shammai, the son of Gera, reviled him, David was silent. Although he was surrounded with armed men, he did not return the, the abuse nor seek revenge. I don't... I don't it's hard for me to fathom how the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, hung on the cross and insults were hurled at him. All kinds of things said to him. And here's the one who was the agent of creation. He was the word of God, the Lord Jesus himself, the one who brought into being all that is and did not respond to that kind of abuse. That is beyond what is humanly possible in most of our hearts. The story uh, shows David's refusal to retaliate pays off as his spies are given harbor in Shammai's hometown of Baharim. Now, here's what David was concerned with. He was concerned with God's view of his actions and David was willing to submit to God's judgment as he unquestionably accepts Yahweh's judgment is just. David hopes God might pity him during the cursing that Yahweh may yet balance the curse of Shammai with a blessing. And you will have to read ahead to see. The second thing that I see in this text is a prefiguring of the betrayal 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that uh, there's much in David's departure from Jerusalem that resonates with Jesus' passion narratives in the gospel. Like Jesus, when David was abused, he did not return when he suffered. He did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. David refused to allow retaliation for Shammai's words and actions. Instead, he entrusted himself to God, relying on God's faithfulness in the face of Shammai's curse, and he submitted himself to God's will. Just as David rebuked his loyal follower, Abishai, for wanting to kill Shammai in the defense of David, so Jesus had to rebuke his loyal follower, Peter, for taking up the sword in the defense of Jesus in the garden. Jesus similarly claimed that God was behind the assault in the garden. Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me to drink? Ahithophel also has a real strong parallel with Judas Iscariot and their betrayals of David and Jesus and their suicides. I'm jumping ahead here. We know Judas went out and hanged himself, but what did Ahithophel do? You will see next week he went out and hanged himself for his betrayal. And so isn't it fascinating how in Scripture, Scripture is always moving us toward whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. All of these things that happened to David happened to one in the line of David, greater than David, in a much more powerful way, ultimately for the salvation of our soul. So even 2 Samuel 16 and all the shenanigans going on, all the dysfunction. I mean, these people are the poster children and David himself for a dysfunctional family. They are awful. They are terrible people in many ways. And yet God uses them to show us ultimately. Like when we read the Gospels, if you've read David and you have any sense at all, you're kind of going, something is going on here. Something is being repeated only in a different and higher way with what Jesus himself has done. And remember this. Can't sleep tonight or any night. It's a call of God to you and to me to rest our hope and our quest for glory on our relationship with him. He is our peace. Shall we pray? Father, we do pray and thank you for this chapter being in the Bible. There's so much here, so much more than we could ever dig out if we were here for days. But we thank you that you have spoken to us today and you have encouraged us through your word as we think about the life of David and how he is someone whose life points beyond itself to one who would come who has come, who has fulfilled everything in total righteousness and who will come again to bring judgment and usher in the kingdom. Now, Father, as we continue to worship you, may we give as those who are grateful for the way you work in our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.